This past week, I was scrolling through Facebook when I noticed a post by Rain Wilson. If you don't know who that is, Rain Wilson is the actor that plays Dwight Schrute on The Office. And the post showed a picture of him, and he had on a hat, he had on sunglasses, and he had on a mask. He was out and about, and there was an individual on the street that came up to him and said, Is that you, Dwight? And here's what he replied. Rain then said, how in God's name does that happen? Well, then an individual on Facebook responded back to him and said, it's because you're an icon. And that's what I want to talk to you about today in a message called From Individuals to Icons. That's the point we're going to see in Genesis chapters 2 through 4 in our series called from the shallow. And we really are going to jump into the deep end of the pool here this morning. So an icon is something that is so deeply embedded in us that we recognize it even if it is disguised. Keep that in the back of your mind. Right now, if I was to show you a picture of a monk with a bird on his shoulder, most of you would know that that is St. Francis of Assisi, because he is an icon. Or if you saw a man standing in a boat wearing a tri-corner hat, you probably would know that it is George Washington crossing the Potomac. Or if you saw a tall man with a top hat on, you would know it is Abraham Lincoln. And the list could probably go on, because they are more than individuals, they are also icons. Now, an icon is not the same as an idol. An idol has some mystical element to it uh, that causes a person to worship it. But an icon is an image, a person, an object, or maybe even an event that has some type of sentimental or symbolic power within its culture. You see, sometimes an idol and an icon can come together. That's what happens to the Israelites in the worship of the golden calf. However, an icon is something symbolic that represents something much deeper inside the heart of an individual. So, I had a strange thing happen to me this past week. I went up to BJ's to get some gas, and I pull in with my Subaru Outback, and there's a guy that's pumping the gas there, and he says to me, he says, hmm, nice car. I said, well, hey, thanks. He says to me, he says, how's it go? I wasn't sure what he was talking about, and he had this sedan that had kind of a double exhaust system on it. And I said, well, I have about 62,000 miles on it. And he says, oh, no, 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 how fast does it go? Well, I thought to myself, why is he asking me how fast an outback goes? Here's a utility vehicle that I use to haul mulch home, basically. Uh, you can put a kayak on the top of it, or you can pull a small trailer or whatever it may be. But heavens, it's not built for speed. But that wasn't the point. He wasn't really asking about my car. He wanted me to ask about his. And he goes to me, he says, see my car? It goes 180 miles an hour. 
And I thought to myself, 180 miles an hour. And I said to him, I said, I would never drive that fast even if my car could go that fast. And when I got home, I told Esty, I said, does my forehead say sucker on it or what's the deal? I, people say the strangest things to me. But then I began to think about it. His car was kind of like an idol to him. And even though it too was a Subaru, he really was hoping that there would be a Jaguar front hood ornament on it. And why he was bragging about how fast this Subaru sedan would go tells me more about him than about the car. Now, icons can be positive or they can be negative. They can be symbolic or they can be substantive. They can be all kinds of different things. But as we come to Genesis chapters 2 and 3 today, when I say the names Adam and Eve, you will think of these two individuals as individuals more than icons. And that's what I want to clarify a little bit today. When you open the text to Genesis chapter 2, you're going to find a second creation account. And when we move into chapter 2 and begin to read it, some of the parts of it feel a little bit deja vu. However, there is a strange difference in chapter 2 than chapter 1. And the question is, why? Why is there a difference? Now, think about this. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, we see things like vegetation is created on the third day. Animals are created on days five and six. Then humans, both male and female, are the grand finale on day six. However, in Genesis chapter 2, one human, Adam, is created before vegetation and before the animals, which Adam names. And when it's clear that there is no suitable partner for Adam, then we find that God creates the woman and she will be named Eve. But if we will step back for a second, if we will look at the details, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 have an entirely different feel to it. In Genesis 1, God is kind of high and lofty. He is sovereign, and he's speaking things into existence. In Genesis chapter 2, God is more anthropomorphic. He takes on human characteristics. It's more intimate, and he breathes life into Adam, and he takes a rib and creates Eve. So you have two very different creation accounts, and these stories side by side raise the question, well, why? Is someone trying to confuse us, or did an editorial team get a bit sloppy? And usually the explanation is, well, Genesis chapter 1 is kind of telescopic, that is the big picture, and Genesis chapter 2 is microscopic, it gets down to the details. And I used to think that way. But today I'm going to show you that's kind of the wrong way of looking at this. You see, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 reflect the broader ancient Near Eastern context. 
So Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden are like this rest of chapters 1 through 11. They are iconic in nature, and they undergird what are the cultural norms of the day, and they give an expression to cultural identity. So as with Genesis chapter 1, the second creation story is not so much a historical account as we normally think of it, neither is it a scientific account, but it is an iconic account. And so what I want to do is sort through this with you, and you're going to find in your liturgy two charts. And the first chart is a comparison of the two creation accounts. And if you will look at it closely, you're going to see a couple of things. First of all, is the duration of creation. In chapter 1, it's six days. In chapter 2, it's only one day. The primordial scenario is in chapter 1, dark, and the water, and the chaos. And then in chapter 2, it's like an oasis and a desert. The sequence of creation is entirely different between the two chapters as well. And even the method of creation is different. In chapter 1, God is speaking and separating and naming and blessing. But in chapter 2, he is forming and he's breathing and he's planting. and He's even putting Adam to sleep. And then the portrait of God is different. And even the name of God is different. In chapter 1, God is transcendent and sovereign and the name Elohim is used. In chapter 2, He is more intimate, he is more imminent, and he is more involved, and the name Yahweh is used. And the portrait of humanity is quite different, too. In chapter 1, there is an unspecified number of humans that are created simultaneously as royals that represent the image of God. And in chapter 2, it is one male, then one woman, as servants that are made to be caretakers of the garden that they are placed in. So these two stories are clearly different, and this significant difference raises the question, why? Why? Now, if you try to stitch them together into a seamless whole, um, you will dismiss the particular and distinct point of view that the authors are deliberately trying to make. So let's think through the name man and Adam. It's the same Hebrew word. But in chapter 1, man, and even in chapter 2, man, is small a, representing mankind. But then in chapter 2, Adam with a capital A is a name, even though it's the same Hebrew word. So when the word Adam, small a, is used, it's ambiguous. Um, Uh, It represents all of humanity, but when it's used with a capital A, uh, uppercase word, it represents one man, Adam. And this word is used back and forth between the chapters. And it means, I think, that Adam is a special subset of Adam. Let me say that again. Adam, capital A, is a special subset of Adam, small a, that is, of all humanity. So the character of Adam is the focus of the story that continues 
in chapter 2 that is found in the context that we talked about last week. Remember, the Jewish people are coming out of exile, and they, re, they need to redefine their identity. And so how is that going to happen? What we find taking place is in chapter 2, there's a second telling of the story because Adam plays out Israel's national life. In other words, in chapter 2, Adam is the proto-Israel. He is the preview of coming attractions. Now, that's important to understand. Understanding Adam as proto-Israel may help us make sense of a nagging detail or two in between these two chapters that don't fit together. So when we look at it, one of the things that we find here is Adam, as proto-Israel, is a representation of not only the nation of Israel, but the human beings that make up that nation, which includes a wide swath, which solves a problem that kids will bring up. And Corey, next week, is going to be preaching about Cain and Abel. And so the story comes up that Adam and Eve have Cain and Abel, uh, but Cain is married, and a kid will get a parent every time on this. Well, where did he get her wife? Very good question. But if you understand that Adam and Eve as well are kind of the prototypical Israel, and there are more humans that are on the face of the earth than these two people, then that problem solves itself. If we read this story very carefully, if we will keep our eyes open to the ancient mindset, we're going to see a parallel between Adam and the nation of Israel. And that's the second chart in your liturgy. So take a look at it. In the one column, Adam is created out of dust. He's placed in a garden paradise. He's given a command to follow, and obedience leads to life. Disobedience leads to death and exile. You find this in Genesis 2.17 and Genesis 3.22-24. On the right-hand column is Israel. Israel's created out of slavery in the desert. Dust. They are placed in a paradise land called Canaan, which is called a land flowing with milk and honey. They are given commands to follow on Mount Sinai. And we are told in the book of Deuteronomy that obedience means possession of the land, but disobedience will lead to exile. And it is in exile they dry up, and they are like what we read in our scripture reading, a valley of dry bones. So let's think through this a little bit further. When we think about how the Old Testament tells the story of the nation of Israel, you have to not just take the book of Genesis, even though those are the foundational stories, what we find is each of the writers of the Old Testament books have in the back of their mind not one individual Adam, not one individual Adam, but Adam, humanity as a whole, and in particular, proto-Israel, and that is this new nation that we'll see in a few weeks is formed out of the family of Abraham. Now, 
Stick with me here. We're on the deep end, I understand. In Ezekiel chapter 37, there is a few things that are stated there that I think are phenomenal to listen to. So we read part of it. And what you're going to find is this vision that Ezekiel has of a valley of dry bones. They have died and they are decomposing, basically. That is Israel in her captivity. And so Ezekiel asks the question, can these bones live? And here's the answer that is given. And verses 11 through 14, it, said, it says this, listen closely. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open up your graves and bring you up from them. You see the picture of resurrection there? And I will bring you back into the land of Israel, and then you will be my people, and you will know that I am the Lord when I open up your graves and bring you up from them. And I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and you will settle in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and I have spoken, and I have done this. So think for a moment. Ezekiel chapter 37 is all about Israel coming back into the land. And we've already said that Adam and Israel mirror each other. The Adam story is talking about how humanity is exiled and is uh, separated from God. And it is found in Israel's story. Now, this way of understanding the Adam story is up against what you have heard your whole life. Let me summarize it for you. The popular story of Adam and Eve for much of Western Christianity is, and especially under the influence of a man by the name of St. Augustine, said that um, not only did humanity inherit a sinful nature from Adam and Eve because of their disobedience, but also the guilt of their actions as well. And so the idea of St. Augustine is all of humanity descends from these two individuals. Now, what we have discovered over the last 20 years is this. There is a project called the Genome Project that has substantiated that it is genetically impossible for everyone to come from the same two individuals. If you're interested in this topic, uh, there's a book called Adam and the Genome, written by Scott McKnight, and it's very, very good. So there's a different way of thinking about this, though, where you don't run into the scientific conflict with this shallow end understanding of Genesis. And it is found in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the interpretation of this story of Adam and Eve and their eventual fall from grace is not a fall from perfection, but a failure to grow up to godly wisdom and maturity. So think of Adam and Eve as not perfect superhumans, as we think about them before they sinned and they failed, but think of them as young, naive children who were meant 
to grow up into obedience, but they were tricked into following a different path. Now, why in the world would anyone read Adam's story this way? Well, here's some good reasons for it. If you look at the command that is found in chapter 3 of Genesis, Adam and Eve may eat from any tree in the garden except one, right? They're not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have you ever thought in the back of your mind, well, isn't knowledge a good thing? Why would that be off limits to these two individuals? The reason is there are some things that they cannot handle yet. It's not that it's bad. It's just that it's not right yet. Think about your kids for a moment. Think about some of the things that they have to grow into. You don't throw your car keys into the lap of your five-year-old and say, okay, drive the car. They have to grow into that. You do not give them power tools until they're ready. You do not give them chemicals to play with. You see what I'm saying? There are things that they have to grow into. Wouldn't you think a better command, if it was all about a prohibition, would have been, hey, you are not to eat from the tree of disease and death. You're not to eat from the tree of lust and lying. You're not to eat from the tree of murder and mayhem. You're not to eat from the tree of greed and gossip. And the list could go on and on and on. Wouldn't those be much more worthy uh, prohibitions? Well, the pr point of it is, this isn't the story about two individuals. It's a story about a nation. Think about this. Knowing the difference between good and evil is the point of the whole Old Testament law. We think of Torah and all the commands that are given in Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. And they are designed for a young nation to grow into wisdom. And the big choice Israel faced throughout her history was to either obey the law and be blessed by God or disobey the law and forfeit the land. And that's what they do. They go into exile. You see, obedience to God is the prerequisite for knowing good and evil. So what we find, we also read a portion of the book of Proverbs. And all of these passages have ties back to the book of Genesis. So if you're following along and you have a Bible and you wanted to took, uh, take a look at the book of Proverbs, in chapter 1 of the book of Proverbs, it's, um, it begins this way. It says, The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for uh, receiving instruction, for prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple and knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning and let the discerning gu uh, get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. For the fear of the Lord is the, not the end, but the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the book of Proverbs begins to talk as though 
you grow into certain things when you are ready for them. And the prohibition of God to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a prohibition to safeguard their experience in the Garden of Eden so that they would not be exiled out of the garden. And that's what happens after they eat, they are exiled out of the garden. And that is a preview of what happens to the nation of Israel during the time they go into exile into Babylon. Now, chapter 3 of Proverbs, just a couple of verses here. In chapter 3 of Proverbs, it picks up on some of the themes that we find in Genesis chapter 2 and 3. Verse 13, Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding, for she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She's more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant ways, and all her paths are peace. Now listen, listen. Okay, you need to perk up here. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold fast will be blessed. And by wisdom, now listen, oh my goodness. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundation. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. This is all Genesis language here. The tree of life laying the foundations of the earth. You see, there's something much deeper going on in Genesis chapter 2 and 3 than kind of the simplistic Sunday school story that we are told that everyone dies because Adam and Eve took a bite of an apple. This is very profound information. Well, there's one other element. Another icon comes into the story. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 of the book of Genesis, there is a serpent that enters into the story. And he is described as craftier than any other animal that the Lord God had made. Listen to verses 1 through 7 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. She adds some language to the command. That's not the point here. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and he gave, she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. All of this is telling us that they wanted to become God rather than to grow into wisdom, rather to grow into knowledge. They wanted to shortcut it. And you know who was at fault here? This crafty serpent. And the language here is the idea of kind of like street smarts. 
it's the idea that someone is shrewd and it knows how to manipulate someone else. And so this brief dialogue that follows the serpent's entrance into the story shows the serpent outwitting this simple, young, naive Eve, sort of like a veteran car salesman that is able to manipulate a first-time buyer. A first-time buyer goes in to buy a car, and they are at the mercy of the salesman because they are crafty. They look for a way to get into your head and get you to buy a car you really don't want, that you can't afford, and leave you feeling good about the idea. In other words, what happens here is the serpent. And this is no slight against you, Jay, calendar. But what it is, is it's a reminder of people that know more and are more skilled can take advantage of people who are more young and naive. You see, there's a problem here. And at the heart of Genesis chapter 3 is this. Knowledge, knowledge without character and maturity is dangerous and deadly. Let me say that again. Knowledge without character and maturity is dangerous and deadly. God wants the human race to have the knowledge, but he wants them to have the character to go with it. So here we are in the industrial age, and we can create anything, but we're destroying the planet in the process. That's not wise. See, when we use knowledge for the wrong things and in the wrong way, it usually leads to death. And this story is telling us here that we all have choices to make. The choice that was put before Adam and Eve is the same choice that is put before Israel each and every day in their formation. And it's the same choice that you make and I make as well. The story of Adam and Eve is more than the story of two individuals. It's iconic in nature. And we see that even in the book of Proverbs, it takes the form of wisdom literature. The story of Adam and Eve is a preview of the long journey of mankind. Isn't it interesting that Adam, with a capital A, Adam, the individual, is never mentioned again in the Old Testament except in one genealogy in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 1. That's it. If Adam was such an important individual, why isn't he mentioned throughout the rest of the Old Testament? The reason is, even the Israelites understood that Adam was an iconic representation of their relationship with God and how they were going to obey the law or disobey the law and suffer the consequences or the blessings of it. And this becomes an iconic symbol for all of us as well. Our estrangement from God is found in the same way as Adam and as Israel. We want to do our own thing, and we think we know better than God, so we just go ahead and do what we want to do, and then it comes back around to bite us, and it leads to death-like existence. Isn't it interesting that it says in the text in Genesis chapter 3, you know, the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, they eat of it. They don't die that day, do they? Oh, but they are expelled from the garden. And that is like a death. 
they have lost something that they cannot recapture. So what I'm trying to say here this morning is this, as I close. The Adam and Eve of Genesis is archetypal. It's archetypal. It's not biological. They are icons, just like the serpent. Incidentally, the icon of the serpent is a common image of chaos and mystery and deceit in the ancient Near East. Adam and Eve become icons of what happens when we assume the place of God having knowledge, but not the character and wisdom that goes with it. We unleash chaos that leaves lingering consequences that perverts God's good creation and prevents us from living in love toward other people. And so today, as I finish this, I want us to think once again of taking these stories and placing ourselves in the position. I am like Adam. I am like Eve. I'm like Israel as well. And so we need to be discerning. And so in our benediction this morning, I have this written. In an image-saturated world, a world of ubiquitous corporate icons permeating our consciousness, a world of dehydrated and captive imaginations in which we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to be able to dream of life other ways. Christ, though, is the image of the invisible God in this world, driven by the creation of newness and life. Christ is the image par excellence, the image above all other images, the image that is not a facade. He is the embodiment of the wisdom of God, and he is the source of a liberated imagination of a new way to be truly human, because it all starts with him and ends with him, as we're told in the book of Colossians. So may we take these stories and look at our own lives deeply. And may God give to us wisdom and character and maturity so we can do what is best, not just for our lives, but for other lives and for the planet that we live on as well. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. Amen and amen. We'll see you soon. God bless you.